Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. When warm weather spreads across the national park system, many parks offer nightly gatherings around the campfire. The tradition of gathering around a flickering fire goes back thousands of years. Fire, after all, was a giver of light in the darkest of night and seen as offering safety from what might lurk about in the dark. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. For the park visitor, nightly campfire gatherings are not about feeling safe from the darkness, but rather an opportunity to learn about the surrounding park landscape from a well-informed park ranger. Back in 1968, a National Park Service training brochure explained that the National Park Campfire provides an opportunity to weld the visitor's random experiences and impressions into an understanding and appreciation for the park's real values. Of course, there are a number of definitions and expectations for what constitutes a campfire story. Today, we're going to explore Campfire Stories, Tales from America's National Parks and Trails, a new release from Mountaineer's book. We'll be back in a minute with the editors of the book, Dave and Alyssa Q. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Welcome to the Traveler, Dave and Alyssa. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So before we get into this book, how do you guys define campfire stories? I mean, should they be scary stories, educational, informational, bonding? All of the above? None of the above? I would say all of the above. I would say we tend to shy away from the spooky, traditional, scary campfire story. Um, for our book, what was really important to us was that the stories kind of represent the essence of place and helps you understand the national parks that you are traveling to, that you are taking away something about the features of the park, the people, the culture, the community. Um, it is something that gathers you around the campfire to learn a little bit more about where you are. Dave, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. All of those. And ultimately, we also want to make sure that they're fun right? That they capture your imagination, that they engage, they make you, they make you so excited that you want to share it with somebody else. 
we would inc probably include more scary stories if we weren't such wimps. You know, we're a little uh, <laughs> nervous about listening to those around a dark, <laughs> around the darkness of the wilderness and the campfire. Um, but ultimately, the book and the collection comes from us being curious about the place we're in. How the heck did it come about? Uh, how, 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 what does it take to maintain these places? Um, and what makes these places so special? I, I think we were looking for stories that feed that curiosity, but ultimately not looking for historical texts either. I think there, there is a responsibility for a story to entertain that we were, are mindful of when we're picking the stories that ultimately make up the collection. The book we're discussing today is actually volume two. What approach did volume one take? So volume one, um, we worked on in 2016, Yeah, mm -hmm. I believe. And Dave and I took about six months in total uh, to travel around the U.S. to the six national parks it featured in volume one. We first set out to kind of play around, test out our process in Acadia National Park um, for a month prior to our bigger trip, just to make sure we were asking the right questions, we were going to the right places to find people or stories um, to to know if we wanted to do, you know, workshops, listening sessions. I'm a design researcher um, professionally, so of course I like wanted to over engineer it. Um, and we learned a lot in that initial month living in Acadia, sleeping on the floor of a, a barn eventually because it got so cold mid-October on Mount Desert Island. And then we took what we we learned and we boiled our, our process really down to a smaller set of questions and a simpler uh, approach so that when we hit the road um, that following May, uh, we went around the country to the five remaining parks and lived out of our car in our tent. And we landed in a place, tried to learn as much as we could find the sort of community co uh, connectors, people who knew a lot about each place and started to really dive through all the libraries and archives um, within the national parks and even old um, used bookstores around the communities, around the parks and really leaned on existing text and, and stories and um, people that we were meeting and writers or poets that that they knew. And we were really working with um, existing text uh, as we traveled through. Yeah. And I think what was important to us was that we were in those places for weeks at a time. We experienced them with our bodies. We talked to people about the place. We really got a good sense of what what makes these places tick both on the surface you know what is the what do the parks present themselves as but what is it like to live in these places what is it like to work around here um trying to tell both stories because ultimately the book is trying to tell the story of place we're trying to capture the essence of place through a selection of stories um and, and communicate that to the reader and we felt like we needed to really experience that ourselves and become experts before we could authentically share that story of place i will add as we explored each place. We were probably in each park for about two weeks to a month. It just depended on the circumstances and our, our schedule. Themes really started emerging for us of what needed to be captured about each place. And as we moved through our conversations with people, 
it was really cool to be able to, you know, interview a lobster man and know that we had to go talk to Ed, the boat builder, because it represented a certain theme and just hop in our car and go talk to that person. And our process um, for the first volume was we were sharing those themes as we were on the road of what we were hearing and learning. And we were trying to find stories that really captured the essence of those themes so that we felt like the stories reflected uh, those parks fully and authentically. Understandably, I'd love to read about national parks and I've got behind me this incredible personal collection of of several hundred volumes of different park books. And and among the collection are, are readers, if you will, um, the Grand Canyon Reader, the Rocky Mountain Reader, which, you know, they're, they're collections of, um, I guess I would call them more historical writings about the park. You know, pieces have been written, you know, maybe a decade ago, maybe five decades ago or a century ago that really try and convey that sense of place. You've taken a different approach with volume two in that, um, for the most part, it's based in present day. Is that right? Correct. There are some historical pieces in the book still, and those pieces to us feel very timeless. Um, They represent place now and then, Um, but we took a different approach for a couple of different reasons um, for volume two. So yeah, at the start of creating this series, even with volume one, it was important to us to get a range of perspectives when it came to national park stories. And we wanted to um, make sure that we were not only sharing a specific point of view. Um, we found that, you know, we we wanted text from more women, people of color, and it was really hard to find that in libraries and archives um, because that requires some level of curation of thinking about which texts, which narratives, which stories are important to preserve and keep. Um, and, And we had a really hard time finding those diverse voices with the resources that we had available to us that first time around. So we always had in our back of our mind, you know, like if we could ever do this again, if we ever did a volume two, like we would do this really differently so that we could make sure we had those different voices represented in the volume. Um, I think we did a pretty fine job with what we had uh, at, you know, that was available to us the first time around. It was really important to us. But the second time around, we kind of leveraged a really unique situation of a global pandemic to reach more people and create more opportunity to invite others to write stories for volume two. This is Kurt Rappencheck. We're talking today with Dave and Alyssa Q, who are the editors of a new book uh, just out on April 1st, Campfire Stories, Tales from America's National Parks and Trails, volume two. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, 
each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Okay, now I'm wondering, you know, you've started out on this mission and you have the, the, the bigger picture of what you wanted this book to convey. How did you go about choosing the writers whose works appear in this volume? That's a great question. We had um, a multifaceted approach um, just because we knew we would need to shake shake the source material, uh, shake multiple sources, you know, look in all sorts of um, places before we would find the types of stories we were looking for. So one was, um, I guess we had a call for submissions. We, we just put the call out and asked people to submit their stories. And that was in three categories. One was you could submit a story that you already wrote about a, a national one of the national parks we were focusing on in this next book. The second line was we were asked, we were looking for commissions. We we're looking to commission a story. So we'd ask for writing samples, uh, and kind of get a sense of, you know, what, what's this person's voice? Uh, what's the writing style like? And, and do we want a new story from, from this person? And, you know, the caveat was that you would have to um, have experienced these places firsthand <laughs> before we would, we would look for a, a new piece of writing from you. And the third was um, we were, we were able to, thanks to a Kickstarter campaign, able to offer a, a modest travel stipend, really um, acknowledging the fact that there is an income gap. Uh, there's there's a lack of accessibility. It's hard to get to these places. Um, as beautiful as they are, they're a little out of reach if you don't have uh, the material wealth to get yourself to those places, to have the equipment to stay there for, for a while, to have just the idea of you know taking time off to enjoy these places. So um, you know the, the money that we offered didn't cover all those expenses, but it just allowed a different type of writer to go and experience these places firsthand so they might be able to contribute a story to this collection. And I'll add for our call for submissions, it was a, available for any writer, for all people to submit a story, to apply, to write a story or to travel. But we made a specific push to invite people who are part of the BIPOC LGBTQ plus communities to apply. And we you know, socialize that opportunity in a lot of existing communities and groups focused around those audiences in the outdoors and ask that people please share and apply. And that invitation we felt like was really important because historically these audiences are often left out of the story, left out of the narrative. Um, they're sort of marginalized in the outdoor space and especially like environmental writing uh and often um 
I've observed, uh, you know, recently when those diverse perspectives are brought in, they're often asked to provide their perspective as a person of color or LGBTQ, and their piece has to be about that. And that wasn't what we were looking for. We we felt like it was important for them to share their their story, a story, but the piece didn't, it had the freedom of, we didn't need the piece to be about that identity in the outdoors. Um, so that was a really important part of the process. Now, as you mentioned, you know, bringing different viewpoints, different cultural perspectives um, into this book. In Canyon Dreams, Deborah Jackson Taffa compares the outdoors that her Native American father encountered in the 1950s in the Southwest with her experience upon returning to Arizona and visiting Grand Canyon National Park. You know, one of the passages she writes, My ancestors had wandered through the land's beauty freely for centuries. It was their place to pray, but now it felt overrun, and I realized the disparities in access were not only racial, but economic. My poorest cousins in Yuma would never be able to afford this place, but the prohibitive costs in Sedona transcended cultural and race. I mean, it's very specific to the Grand Canyon, but there's probably lots of places across the national park system where you encounter that very same situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, we really appreciated the perspective that Deborah brought to a kind of a complicated issue. You know, when you, I think we've only talked about the national parks as, as a great experiment with, with great results, but there are complications that arise when you kind of draw a border around a piece of land and say, this is now preserved park land. And I think with the book, we're trying to say that th yeah, this is special, but for a lot of people, this also brings up some complications. It's not, it's not purely austere to go back and visit these places. There are mixed emotions that, that you might bring to these places. And I think we want to celebrate the park's idea um, and the national parks as a continuing project. But we also want to bring up these other perspectives, these other ways of looking at uh, the same project and the, the same national park idea, and certainly give voice to um, those perspectives as well. No, absolutely. And it, and it transcends one culture because you've got displacement. I mean, you, you look at Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the, the Cherokee people were driven out of there. Um, you go up to Shenandoah National Park and it was a lot of the, the, the white settlers, so to speak, who were forced out of the park. So it's not necessarily specific to one race. It transcends a lot of different places and, and to get those different voices in there. Yeah, in the first book, we we did um, Great Smoky National Park, and we wanted to kind of we structured that section to include both those displacements. You know, the displacement of the Appalachian um, settlers in order to make the park, but also the the displacement a hundred years before of the of the um, uh, the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears. That both of those were necessary to create the park, and now we get to enjoy this park today, but not without those sacrifices. I think one of the really fun parts of the Grand Canyon chapter is the conversation that's sort of happening between the different perspectives in the stories we selected. In Deborah's piece, you know, she remarks, you know, in the end of a couple that is running barefoot through the canyon and, you know, they're, they're injured and I'm blanking on the the order of stories, but I think it's the next story is um, a barefoot walker who, you know, celebrates this way of engaging and feeling the earth. And in another piece, 
We have Mary, who uh, was a volunteer firefighter, who then is a person who goes and rescues people who are injured on the trail. That was very intentional to make sure that we're showing the different dimensions and perspectives of those different experiences within the parks. And I think that that is truly felt and conversational in that Grand Canyon chapter. We're talking today with David and Alyssa Q, who are the editors of a new book from the Mountaineers Press, Tales from America's National Parks and Trails, Campfire Stories, Volume 2. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. With Interior Federal Credit Union, you can rest assured your funds are safe. Credit unions are insured by the National Credit Union Administration, the NCUA, which means that your accounts have insurance up to $250,000. Our members haven't lost a penny of insured funds. Stay protected and join today at interiorfcu.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Okay, we're back with uh, Alyssa and David Q talking about this new book from the Mountaineers Press. Now, of course, just like you'll encounter different types of stories and approaches from National Park Campfire Talk to National Park Campfire Talk, Readers of Campfire Stories Volume 2 will also encounter a rich variety of stories. For instance, in Living Jewels of the Everglades, Rachel Loria writes about small, colorful whorls, snails, and along the way takes us into the raw, natural beauty of the park. I thought that was a really interesting. I mean, I've been to Everglades a couple times, and I never heard about these these snails. And to, to focus on something so small and such a huge, diverse ecosystem was really unique. Yeah, and what Rachel does uh, that's really special in that story is just take you into not only why the snails are special, but the long history that the snails and the the what is it the prize the prize gathering of snails has how that has shaped the park. Uh, it's something that you would completely miss if you spent one day in the Everglades and were just trying to hit the big spots. But something that has um, so uh, so so deeply integrated into the landscape of that park. Were you able to to? delve deeply into those types of natural resource issues from different perspectives? For this volume, we really leaned on our writers to bring their experiences and expertise through their stories. When we worked on volume one, we were able to allow our curiosities lead us to the next and and learn a lot ourselves since we did not do the traveling um, this time and really kind of skip that middleman step of talking to the experts or people um, who bring that knowledge around natural resources, 
we really relied heavily on our writers and we learned a lot through our, our writers um, and their stories. It must have been quite the, the daunting proposition because to, to, to sit there as an editor and you, like you said, you haven't visited all these places for this edition and to get all these different submissions in and trying to decide which ones go into the book. What a challenge. Yeah, I mean, a challenge, but also in ways almost easier <laughs> because it's when you, so as a, as a researcher, I'm often, you know, I, I'm, I'm loyal to every input that I'm, I'm hearing and the different themes I'm collecting and all the information feels so precious and I have to share it all. And that's kind of a trap we fell into with volume one is that there were, there's such rich information, so much that we took away there really aren't enough pages in a reasonably sized book to include it all. And so it made it even more challenging, I think, as editors, when we had all the information to look at stories critically and think like, what would be engaging? What would ignite someone's imagination about this place? Because we had had all these rich conversations and experiences ourselves that it it made it harder to extract ourselves from all that knowledge and think about what makes a good campfire story for this book. And to your point earlier, you know, you have national park readers that have these historical texts, these like, you know, fuller passages that explain natural resources and history. We're kind of going for a different audience here, like a more general audience. Maybe they're not um, national park I don't want to call you like snobs, but they're not like, you know, the people who are going to all the, the programming and talks, doing that kind of reading and research on their own. They might have an, a connection to national parks. They might love the outdoors, but like what's really going to hook a reader to want to learn even more. So I feel like when we approached volume two, it was easier to look at pieces and kind of look at it through the eyes of our readers and our audience and the people that we know that are like are picking up the book and might not already be loyal national park fans, but are interested in outdoor writing and think like, is this going to catch them? Is this um, engaging, interesting enough? So in a way, kind of um, it, it made that process a lot more efficient. <laughs> now, Native American impressions are so valuable. Um, as today's generations try to come to understand those perspectives of the national park system, because as, as David uh, mentioned earlier, these places weren't always surrounded by nice tidy borders or nice crooked borders. Um, Harvest Moon brings some of those uh, perspectives across in Glukeek Lenchen. I hope I got that right. A short story based in Olympic National Park. Why, why did you include that that story? Oh my gosh, I would say working with Harvest Moon for starters, was probably one of the greatest joys of this whole process. She is so wonderful and so communicative and was so supportive and helpful through the whole process. As a side note, it was kind of, it was fun working with her because one of the things that made including contemporary voices and um, doing this process remotely during a global pandemic happened was that like we kind of stole this line from one of our um, contributors that our lives suddenly became one big Zoom meeting and it was easier to access people and have conversations 
that we could only have with people like traveling to the parks, like now suddenly we could reach them through Zoom and email. But Harvest Moon was one of the people that didn't have access um, for reasons of service and, and getting to a computer to, to talk with. So we we had to move at a different pace and communicate in different ways. And it was just always a surprise and just generally lovely. We would get like handwritten stories, literally on lined paper. She would joke about sending us smoke signals and we just loved working with her. So I will just say that was one of the highlights of this process. And I can answer more directly in that we were looking for a Sasquatch story. Uh, it just kept coming up again and again as something that's important to this region. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the creature lives in this region and there are a lot of sightings and stories that just kind of keep coming up. But we everything we read, again, it, it kind of fell into the the spooky, <laughs> the spooky. We're trying to scare you. Uh, watch out for Sasquatch while you're you know sleeping outside at night. It fell into that category. Um, and I think for us. Uh, the, yes, yes, we were looking for entertaining stories, but we're also looking for something that'll kind of communicate essence of place, give you a kernel of truth so that you you don't walk away from our collection with uh, a bunch of tall tales and, and, and you know, a, a less of an understanding. And I think we were trying to find the right Sasquatch story. So when we came upon uh, Harvest's work, it was it, it, it was incredible to realize that the Sasquatch legend not only is, um, you know, a, a kind of a white colonial story, but it also um, is part of the indigenous folklore as well. Um, so to hear uh, Harvest tell it and to, and to find a version, and I think we ultimately found this as um, a spoken word performance that Harvest gave us her blessing to uh, transcribe. And then once we transcribed it, we realized, okay, this still reads pretty well. Sometimes those formats don't kind of cross over, but still, this still pre reads pretty well. And her, her perspective and her kind of... Um, uh, uh, yeah, her perspective as an indigenous storyteller gave the Sasquatch narrative a, a little more, um, I guess, life, <laughs> a little more length, a little more um, uh, authenticity. authenticity for us to want uh, to, to kind of find a way to include this into that chapter. You know, another um, interesting story based in Olympic that I really enjoyed was from, um, I hope I get her name right, Anja Samanko, Samanko and her search for the one square inch. Mm -hmm. said to be the quietest spot in the United States. Um, I think many of us constantly search for such a place when we enter a, a national park, no? Absolutely. Um, I think that's why people go to national parks. Uh, but then you get there and you realize there's so much more to listen to. <laughs> so much you can't quite shut everything out the way you expected. But, you know, the, the fact that there is this designated square inch of pure silence in the Olympic Park, I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of interest, a lot of writing about it. Um, and Anya's story is one that we ended up commissioning. She she pitched to us that she would go and try to find this one square inch. Um, and I won't reveal the, you know, the, the end of the story, but I, I think we were excited to have someone kind of engage that 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 that's that's one square inch of silence that captures so much of people's imagination that we for sure wanted to include somebody writing about that project. And one of the, the interesting things, and I, I hope I don't reveal the end of the story, was along the way as she's searching for this place of silence. Mm -hmm she came across a sound that baffled even the seasonal park rangers there, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the, the conundrum, you know, we're, we're listening for silence. All of a sudden we hear this, this scary sound almost. And what is it? And I thought it was a nice touch. 
Yeah, we think of the wilderness as a quiet place, but if you know what you're listening for, there's it's it's raucous. <laughs> there's a lot of communication that's happening. It's not as silent as we it's it's silent in terms of the you know uh, human made noises, uh, but in terms of the wilderness, th- there's still a lot going on if you just know how to look for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was surprised um, by your inclusion of a piece by George Bird Grinnell from Glacier National Park. Um, you touched a little bit earlier on on why you went in search of such pieces, but could you could you explain why you picked uh, Grinnell's piece on Glacier? I think so. A lot of this, a lot of the um, collection is looking for new voices. But we're also not ignoring the history of these places. Uh, we're actually doing a lot of re- a lot of our back end research is understanding, you know, the historical tenets of where these places come from, the political machinations that uh, allowed for these designations to happen. Uh, and very often, you know, a lot of these um, original founders <laughs> will have texts in the in the 1900s. You know, there's a lot of case making that happens for these parks. We needed to kind of uh, get get the country interested in the idea of a national park, which at the time was a foreign idea. Um, so there's a lot of there is a lot of great writing about like you know the justification for these places. Um, but these are not without complications. I think George Bird Grinnell was a complicated figure. That history that that that, that he has he has some marks on on his legacy um, that we found a piece of writing that that really does a great job of making the case for Glacier National Park. And we included it uh, because, you know, it, it, it does give you a great grounding. I think we use the first story in each chapter to kind of get 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 someone situated. If you haven't visited the place, this is the text that's going to give you an overview, help you understand a little bit uh, more about, you know, what the place that you're kind of emotionally opening up to. But we use our about the stories then to, you know, give a full, clear-eyed view of who this person is, what this te- where this text comes from, why we liked it, but also what you should know as, as you're considering this text in 2023, right? Right. And, and those little um, explainers are at the end of each article. Should have mentioned that early on. No, yeah, we, and we have, that's uh, deliberate of us. You know, we, we want you to, we want the reader to engage with the piece first, you know, as the author attended it. And then we will put a, a little bit of coloring, a little bit of context as to why we selected it, but also how it sits in the canon. Maybe maybe a little detail about, you know, working with authors like this that, that you necessarily wouldn't have access to. But we certainly want these pieces to stand alone for the readers. Now, also um, somewhat unusual in the book are, are poems, such as What Makes the Grizzlies Dance by Sandra Alcacer, if I got that right. And let me just read one short section. June and finally snow peas sweeten the valley. High behind numinous meadows, ladybirds swarm. Like huge lacquered fans from Hong Kong, like the serrated skirts of blown poppies, whole mountains turn red. And then the blue penstemon, grizzly bears swirl as they bag snags of color against their ragged mouths. I mean, such a such an evocative piece. I mean, and the, the poems really offer uh, what I found to be a unique counterbalance to the longer stories, and they obviously challenge the the, the poets to to be as evocative as possible in a, in a short amount of space. Yeah, I think in both volumes of the book, we really strive to have a variety of stories in length, but also type. In the first volume. We have songs and ballads and poetry. Um, in this volume, we continued with that of different form of 
poetry and prose in addition to the short stories and essays. And that's really to help the reader kind of, you know, find what speaks to them to offer different timing for if they do want to read these out loud at a campfire to really help. I feel like poetry does a really amazing job at reframing and pushing you outside your comfort zone, um, pushing you outside the box and just having that different perspective of place. And I think this piece in particular just really jumped out at us um, for those reasons. Okay, so I guess I'm wondering, um, volume two is uh, on its way um, to the bookstores and whatnot. Is there a volume three coming up? (laughs) We have not talked about this yet. Um, It's a great question. I think uh, the, the intention is that it is flexible enough to to do a volume three. Um, honestly, we didn't think a volume two would happen. We had kids after creating volume one. I uh, found out I was pregnant while we were on our big road trip um, for volume one. We had that child and we've had another. Uh, and I was surprised uh, that that we got to a volume two with a newborn but it, it kind of worked out that way, um, all being home in this great experiment of living through a pandemic um, that made it possible for us to do it without traveling. And I think that the things that made it possible for us then is true for a volume three. However, I think that we've we've learned, you know, what the strengths are and what the weaknesses were in working in that way. And I could imagine a sort of hybrid version where we are able to travel, but also use our new tools and techniques to reach more contemporary writers and invite more people to share their stories. So I would say um, not off the table, not immediately on the table, but I, I am sure there are many more stories to be told from many more parks. So we can leave it there. (laughs) Absolutely. I would agree. Um, I've been a Uh, a writer for for a long time, dating back to the last century. And with the National Parks Traveler, I've always struggled at times to find uh, a new way to to tell stories about the parks. Um, Just because, you know, if you look at guidebooks, they're also largely cookie cutter in terms of here's the lodges, here are the trails, here are the restaurants, here's what you have to see, here's what you can go without. And, you know, I applaud you guys for, for what you've done because you have found a new approach to to writing about the national parks and interpreting the national parks for the readers and and getting um, new generations and, and and diverse generations hooked to go visit the national parks. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think that that is definitely was our our goal and our intention. And you know, I I won't um, discount the value of of traveling to those places ourselves. I think where maybe we struggled the most in the the way that we approached volume two um, was creating connections with particular people or communities and as specific as a lot of the indigenous communities um, in those areas. That's really, it's really important to build trust and a relationship and 
that's just harder to do uh, when you're remote and you're not physically there and in conversation. And in some parks, there are really vocal and established communities and ways of of reaching people, um, younger generations of um, indigenous people who are approaching it very similarly, trying to get the story out. And we had a lot of success there. But in some communities, we really struggled and and, and we feel like maybe in the next time around that there is that um, opportunity to to travel and to listen to, to people's stories. Yeah. Well, there's lots of stories out there. Um, keep listening and bringing them to us. That's Alyssa and David Q. They're the editors of a new book from the Mountaineers Press, Campfire Stories, Tales from America's National Parks and Trails, Volume 2. It's available today. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having us. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to visit with the Travelers Emeritus Professor, Dr. Bob Janeski, to talk about units of the national park system that once were, but are no longer. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.